Hey gang, Sean Zock here, joined by Dylan DeChair. This is The Drop Zone. We have a big show planned for you this week, big things happening in the golf world, and we have Alan Shipnuck joining us in just a bit for an audio version of what is always a very popular column on golf.com, Ask Alan. But before all of that, we have to discuss one of the greatest finishes in golf history. Now, in case you're living under a rock, the European Solheim Cup team beat the Americans 14 and a half to 13 and a half. It came down to the final putt, which almost never happens, which is too bad because I feel like we're now due for like three decades of not very fun mm-hmm. cups. Suzanne Pedersen made about an eight footer to win and she promptly retired after doing so. It was a fascinating day. It started in a tie, eight to eight matches flipped back and forth all over at Glen Eagles. Five matches reached the 18th hole. Which also almost never happens. How many matches reached the 18th at the Ryder Cup last year? I think it's I think it's something three. like it's one out of five or one out of six matches reach 18. So this was exciting all over the board. I mean, this was back and forth. It was tied going to Sunday, and then it kept being tied yeah, throughout points tied. on Sunday. It was 11-11, and there were six matches on the course. It looked like the U.S. was going to win, honestly. Oh, my gosh. At one point, everything needed to go Europe's way. The U.S. posted 13 and a half points. They just needed that last half point and they could not get it. Yeah, 13 and a half. They would retain the cup with 14, which no one loves a tie. I know Stina Sternberg, she is very proudly European and she was like, you know, what? it's not a good rule that 14 and a tie retains the cup for a team it should have a playoff and i'm like wow it sounds like she's kind of being defeatist she's accepting the fact oh, that the americans yeah. are probably going to grab that 14th point and win in a tie lo and behold everything went their way what's crazy though is that peterson was almost not even in position to make this thing happen i mean she could have lost on the 17th hole because uh, marina alex had about like a 20 foot putt to win to end the solheim cup right there then she flares her drive into the rough on 18, which means that even though she's plenty long, if she'd have been in the fairway, she could have got up near the green. She couldn't because she was in the rough, so she has to lay up. Marina Alex has to kind of do the same, and basically it's just like a wedge off from there. And she almost freaking holed out <laughs> from, what was I think, 89 yards. She almost holes out. She spins it back with a wedge and gives her about eight feet, and now... This is where I was just on edge because on the 17th hole, you have Bronte Law just, I don't know. She's basically, she's away from everything. She's away from everyone, and yet she's Mm -hmm. just as important. Like if she doesn't finish out, if she ends up bringing her match to 18 and then they have the tie, it's over then. It doesn't matter, yeah. Everyone's doing what they had to do. The thing that had me on edge is the fact that I ended up hoping – that this putt would go in. I'm American. This is a pro-American podcast. Love that Danielle Kang joined us last week and was all about it. But if you're talking about an eight-footer to win, if it goes in, to lose, if it doesn't, how awkward is that if she misses? Well, it's it's do or die. I mean, it's awkward, but look, we've seen plenty of that in these team matches before you know sometimes you miss a putt and then that's what ends the match it would be brutal no doubt about it but at least it's an eight footer and not a three footer it's actually kind of the perfect putt because that's right around the distance it's it's just outside the distance 
of like a 50-50 coin flip of is she going to make this or is she not. So if she misses, it's not a, it's not that she's choking. You know, it's an eight-footer for birdie. I've missed plenty of eight-footers for birdie in my <laughs> yeah. day, and I would have missed that one. She pured it, though. Right in the center. Right in the center, which was great because, I mean, it was uphill putt, so it would probably be the easiest eight-footer that you could imagine. But this is definitely a win for Mark Brody. If people appreciated that, it could go in, it could go out, it could win for you, it could lose it for you. But that is one of the things that we need to discuss about the Solheim Cup is that this cup, the Ryder Cup, it is always grounds for a revival of someone's narrative. And for Suzanne Pedersen, like it brought her back to the peak of the game after a long break, she had not played a lot of golf this year. She was given a captain's pick. She played pretty well throughout the week, but who knows where she's going to go years from now or three weeks from now. Like She was very uncertain about her career. And four years ago, she was at the center of the game because she did not concede a short putt that led to a winning match that led to a very, very contentious Solheim Cup. All I'm saying is that it gave her an opportunity, and that's what these things do. Like... It gave Martin Keimer an opportunity uh, in Medina to win the Ryder Cup. And that adds to his Hall of Fame resume. This added to Suzanne Pedersen's Hall of Fame resume. What matters here is the golf. Like that, that is what's great. It, it is something that means nothing, and yet it means everything. Well, how much does this echo also, just from last year, Team Europe, you know, when they throttled the U.S. in the Ryder Cup? You had Ian Poulter and Sergio Garcia. Yeah. And Henrik Stenson. Henrik, guys that didn't seem on paper like they were logical picks. Guys that would not end up on an American equivalent team. Yep. Here you have Suzanne Pedersen, who's hardly played golf, has this controversial past. What more perfect way for her to finish than to like drop her putter halfway <laughs> when the ball's still halfway to the hole? I'm sure she was nervous, but she looked plenty confident. She looked like she was trying to make the putt rather than you know, the moment being too big for her or something. It was just such a cool morning because, look, we love Sunday early golf. You know, mm -hmm. we oh, love yeah. that being in the States, waking up to some golf. I actually had a nice little Sunday, 7.20 tea time. Nice. In my hometown, Williamstown, Massachusetts. Finished up just before 10.30. Went down, had a quick sit in the, uh, in the grill and, and just flipped on the Solheim Cup. Danielle Kang's match was just coming down the 16th hole mm -hmm. and just had an, a really nice next few hours. Yes. I stayed right there. How great is it when multiple hours of golf can go by and you don't even notice? Because it does not the, feel like the action all. kept continuing. That's why these matches are so cool is because like, okay, here's another close match coming down to the wire. And people were coming by, you know, coming in and out of the, the grill and saying, oh, yeah, what's going on in the Solheim? And stopping and watching for a few minutes and yeah. then going about their day. But people were invested. You could tell, you know, whether it was just on social media, whether it was in real life, people were dialed into this yeah. tournament. What I hope is that the TV ratings agree with that. I hope that a lot of people watched. I had the mm -hmm. feeling that a lot of people were watching. It cannot get more exciting. Like what happened on TV on Golf Channel could not get more exciting than what happened yesterday. You know, these weeks are always long weeks because the golf doesn't start until Friday. And Friday and Saturday, 36 whole days, they're kind of a slog. Sunday's obviously crazy, but you start paying attention on Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and Thursday feels so yeah. slow. And I'm bringing that up because there are some things that really kind of piss me off 
last week. What pissed you off? Basically just how Daniel Kang was treated. Now, granted, I used this platform, this podcast a week ago to say that she's my new favorite golfer. So this will very will probably be taken as like bias, mm-hmm. the context for what I'm about to say. But yeah, it might have been our fault, but... Yeah, ultimately... I want to blab about it, though. I didn't write about it. I almost wrote a column, but let's blab about it. Daniel Kang told us last week on the drop zone, mind you, this is no longer the golf.com podcast, as many people referred to it in blogging about us. It is the drop zone. Let's get it straight. Take that, listeners. This is the <laughs> drop zone now. Um, she explained to us that she gets hyped for these events. She gets hyped for team match play. She feels, she feels the feeling of letting someone down. Or picking someone up mm-hmm. that is your teammate, making shots for someone else. She loves being a cutthroat competitor. Mm-hmm. She loves the idea that if you have beaten someone in an emotional match, they might end up crying. They might be so heartbroken that you beat them, you triumph over them. She loves that. Now, like I said, it's a long week, but the European... All right, yeah, wait, but let me just stop you there because nothing that you just said seems remotely controversial to me. No. If Patrick Reed said this, we would love it. Yeah. Everyone would love it. The fact that Captain America is ready to, quote, take souls. Mm -hmm. That's how some people treated her online. Some people did not. Notably, the European press, they treated this as trash talk, which, again, a long week, you kind of want to stir up something. You need something to write about. But in her press conference, she made this little quippy joke about how she might get booed at the Solheim Cup. She was in Scotland. She's not far from St. Andrews, the Mm -hmm. home of golf. Very, very prideful people who continued to press her. The Scottish press, the English press said, why do you think you're going to get booed? Who told you you're going to get booed? Will you get booed? Have you been booed before? She was repeatedly pressed about this in her pre-tournament press conference, and it kind of was like half contentious. And she's like, you guys, you're not kidding. It's kind of a joke. Like, and so she's a little embarrassed. It's weird. It's like, is this the most literal group of people on earth? Perhaps. And so that plus her having a little bit of trash talk, both of these things were used as evidence for her being outspoken, for her being offensive to the home of golf, for her being wrong. All of these things, which are laughable, but the greater point is that she was being herself. And what was the answer from golf society to a female golfer being a bit mm-hmm. brandish and herself? It was shush, be quiet. Mm-hmm. You should not talk. It's better to be silent. Alistair Tate from golf week said silence is better than saying something stupid essentially. So all I'm saying is like we reacted to a female being outspoken with no stop. Mm-hmm. And if Patrick Reed did this, it probably would have been a bit like contentious, but people would have loved him for it. And Daniel Kang received a bunch of hateful comments on Instagram, on Twitter, and you and I were actually tagged in a lot of them because we were the ones a part of it. Like it, it was this podcast, so we could see a lot of that online vitriol. Mm-hmm. And that's just not that's not fair. We're treating women who want to be themselves. As, no, you can't be yourself. Yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, in some ways, you know, two dudes talking about this on a podcast is not like, in some ways, it's not the right forum to to handle it, but in some ways it is because it's like, hey, other guys 
stop being idiots. Yeah. She's not literally saying, A, first of all, I can't believe I'm saying this. She's not literally talking about removing souls from other people. She's not literally talking about, you know, like stomping on people. And she also is probably not literally thinking, oh, I'm going to get heartily booed. You know, it was just a joke and it's kind of fun and it's sports and it's golf. And, you know, the idea that it is such an affront to just the country of Scotland to suggest that some of their people would boo. Mm -hmm. I'm very over this (laughs) self-righteous Scottish golf fan thing. We've seen plenty of the same behavior at open championships that we see in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not exactly it's the not, waste management the same, over there, no, but, it, but, but you know, you're not perfect and you don't need to be. That is f- totally fine. So Danielle Kang, it was tough to see because I think the interesting part is right before our interview, she mentioned, you know, I'm just going to give monotone flat answers. Yeah. She was kind of joking. She was like, you know, any, anytime I say anything interesting, you know, it's just not worth it. And that is that's what, what I never want is for it to not be worth it. Mm-hmm. I want people to come on here, be honest, be themselves. I think that that's what, you know, listeners connect with. That's what fans of golf connect with is when players are being themselves and then a few just idiots ruin it for everyone else. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it should be a thing in golf that people can speak out, speak out to the level that LeBron James speaks out and that Aaron Rodgers speaks out and that a lot of professional athletes speak out. Golf should embrace this mm-hmm. because right now we've got a lot of cookie cutter personalities yeah. on the PGA tour, the LPGA tour, and particularly the champions tour. Like there is cookie cutter everywhere. Yeah. Well, and the incentive structure is just screwed up. It, you are incentivized to not say anything, to be boring, you know, cash your check, mm-hmm. go home, be quiet. Charles Howell style. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my guy. And, and nothing against Charles Howell, but when was the last time that that guy created a headline for sharing an opinion? Yeah. Or created, something that he believes in. Or created a whole lot of fun for us golf fans to totally. banter about. I digress. We digress. Daniel Kang, you were a great guest and uh, hopefully golf world can start to appreciate your personality and you were a part of a great first match out on sunday a brutal spot to be in yeah that went to 18 ended up losing on the 18th hole um which was i'm sure tough just because you know she had been under this heavy heavy scrutiny i thought first out was i know she wanted to go out first but i thought that that was a a tough spot yeah well and think about it i mean if she finishes that hole in a tie she -hmm. makes par yeah they win the cup it's not fair to think that way, Oof. but that's truth. Uh, let's move on to another thing at the Solheim Cup, pace of play. I was making a joke that we could call it the Slowheim Cup because early on in the week, Roasted. Uh, Lizette Salas had a bad time. That became a big thing. It felt like they were taking forever. And Daniel Kang, the first group out on Sunday, same thing. They were put on the clock. One thing that I would like to get across here is that pace of play is not the same everywhere it's not the same for you and me pegging it at the local muni that it is for these people on the pj tour and it is not the same for daniel kang when she's playing in a stroke play event than when she's playing in a four ball on friday afternoon at the solheim cup Mm -hmm. it is all relative i don't think that this is necessarily the place nor the time to slap someone on the wrist and say you've lost that hole because you were taking a bit too long in like 30 mile per hour winds in the freezing cold when you were worried about whether your opponent was going to get up and down for par. All right, so let me ask you this. How should slow play 
should it just not be enforced at these matches? Is it is I think it a form of the gamesmanship? Margins should be a bit wider. Mm-hmm. You know, we're kind of trying to figure out if like forty seconds and fifty seconds is what we need with modern professional stroke play. Yeah, perhaps at these match play events, maybe it's sixty seconds, seventy seconds. Like, I don't think that on the sixteenth hole or whenever you end up getting put on the clock. That that is the point where, you know what, Lizette Silas, you have taken too long to play this shot in whipping winds in Scotland when it's cold against someone who you are trying to beat. At that point, 30 seconds is okay. Yeah, it's funny because the way we think about this, a lot of it just comes from a TV perspective, right? How is it going to be produced? And Yeah, does it these, look like she's taking a long time? Well, no, because in these singles matches, you can just, boom, you can cut from one match to the next match to the next match, and it, it stays exciting as long as there are a bunch of matches being played. It, yeah. It's the same thing, to some extent, in the final round of PGA Tour events. It's only once the action slows to like two or three players that you really get a sense of how slow some of those guys are playing. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a case to be made that slow play is sometimes more exciting. <laughs> Late in these rounds, yeah. it, you know, I likened it to, you know, when a closer has a couple guys on base and it, late in a baseball game. You're in the ninth inning, the guy takes a couple extra, you know, laps around the mound before he throws the throws the next pitch because and then the tension just builds and builds. And so when these girls are are circling putts, the drama is building. The, the stakes are just raising. You know, it might help them to just play quicker, but definitely it heightens some of the excitement. But the thing is, I don't need that early on in the round. You no. know, I want the first, second, third holes, you know, get into it. But And I don't know how, how to legislate that feeling that I have. I don't know how you make that into a rule that isn't just self-policed of players playing quickly and then you know taking time when they need to which i guess that would be the the best case scenario but some of the players were speaking out and saying man we were just waiting all day so i think there is some issue there how do we tackle it it's totally tricky because you have alternate shot in which you have two balls in play and then that afternoon you have four balls which there means four balls are in play which is something that women never have or men never have like it's always three players together at the most in these professional events and often two players together so you don't have as many things to consider oh my teammate is 30 yards up in one and I'm back 30 yards in one but they have two people that are even beyond my teammate and so they're going to probably try to hit a little bit closer where are they going to go like once they do go I have to consider what's best for me you're not playing your own game that is another reason why it's completely different like you cannot hold them to the same stroke play standard when you have alternate factors that are in play. I think it's kind of weird that players in these team events have the other players read their putts. That's weird. Yeah. But why not? Because it's totally different from the way you would normally approach a putt. Sure. But this is a completely different event. Like we do get this event once a year at the most, if you consider the President's Cup and mm-hmm. the Ryder Cup to kind of be the same and the Solheim Cup to fit into that. If Jessica Corda has Nelly Corda read six of her putts during their four-ball match together, are we really upset? I like it. I'm not upset about it. <laughs> oh. I, I just think it's funny the way players approach these totally differently when really the goal is basically just to hit the best shot. 
you know, and play the best round. And yet there's all always this talk of like, oh, how are the vice captains going to manage these players? And like, how are they going to get ready being in these different pods? Yeah. And it's like these players do this every single week. Yeah. But then suddenly they need help, you know, with the schedule and mm -hmm. from the <laughs> vice captains. I always think that is so funny. But then they do approach it differently. And it is definitely different. And from, you know, our talks with Danielle, with Jessica Corda, there's no doubt that this event you know, the stakes are more elevated yeah. than anything else. It breeds different things. Speaking of a different atmosphere, these events are also always great because they are team match play events. And I think this reiterates the point that the Ryder Cup always makes, that the President's Cup often makes too, that the NCAAs always reiterates team match play, team golf. It's just great. If we talk about cookie cutter, Literally just look at the PGA Tour schedule and basically the same thing on the LPGA Tour. We're back. You're getting tournament in West Virginia, and then you get a tournament in Mississippi, and then you get a tournament in Houston. Yeah, 72 a, holes of stroke play. Monday's <laughs> travel day. Tuesday's practice round. Wednesday's pro-am. Then boom, 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 boom. 18 holes each day, stroke play. Same thing next Somebody week. Somebody wins. Yeah, turn on your TV. America, you know, turns on the TV about... 3.30 p.m. The only thing that changes is watches generally Watches golf when, for about yeah. three and a half, four hours in the background. Repeat the next week. Yeah. Match Same. play is awesome. Team play is awesome. And, I mean, look, we're excited for the President's Cup. We're just desperate for yeah. team play. The President's <laughs> Cup is, is never exciting. Nope. And yet, here we are begging for the President's Cup to come sooner. For me, it's a reminder of how badly we have screwed up the Olympics again. How is it possible that with all this fun that the Solheim Cup is, that the Ryder Cup is every single time out, and then we go to the Olympics and there's just one event and it's 72 holes of stroke play. Yep. Men's event, women's event. I mean, I would love to see a mixed doubles yeah. um, team play. You know, you have a qualifying round of stroke play and then you get divided into uh, brackets, match play from there. Sure. I think it would be fantastic, but there's even variations of that yeah. that you could do. You could with, have a lot less. You could than have that men's teams playing. You could have women's team. Yeah, I mean, the way that they have done it is just the biggest guarantee that it will blend into the rest of the golf schedule. Yeah, and that seems like a massive miss. Totally, especially during the last Olympics when you did not have the greatest players in the world going down to Rio to play. I mean, that felt like the CIMB Classic because it wasn't in America and it didn't have the top five to ten players in the world. It had a bunch of people ignoring it. It did not feel significant. But I feel bad about that. Like the IGF runs the Olympics, the, the golf wing of the Olympics. I'm kind of starting to think that maybe the RNA should because the RNA puts on great events. The RNA is, again, considered kind of where golf was birthed and the RNA cares about the world of golf at large, the sport, and keeping it very healthy. I just feel bad that, like, just because the IGF doesn't have match play events, like the IGF is not involved with the Ryder Cup, the Solheim Cup, the President's Cup, just because that's the case doesn't mean you have to go down this stroke play lane. I feel bad because the next Tiger Woods could be born in Trinidad, Ooh. <laughs> Libya, Egypt, the next Tiger Woods could be born in like Northern Africa. And that person, they have a ceiling on the world of match play golf. Like the, their greatest match play golf would be relegated to the President's Cup. 
if they're able to make it an event that's really kind of average. And that's too bad. I like the way you, uh, all the Scottish listeners that we alienated earlier, now you're bringing them back in yeah. your pro RNA talk. Yes. I mean, the RNA knows what it's doing. Their decisions are often far ahead of, I think, perhaps the PGA Tour and some of the governing bodies that are rooted here in the United States. Well, and the other piece of this bigger Olympics picture, which is exacerbated in the women's game, is, look, the Solheim Cup isn't showing us the very best players in the women's game. Last year with Team USA versus Team Europe in the men's game, it really felt like, all right, you know, there's not a whole lot of players missing here. No. Jason Day, maybe. It was but, like 14 of the top 20. Yeah. Maybe and more. here, you know, by the time you get to the third ranked U.S. player in the world, I think you're getting to like number. There's only two U.S. women in the top 15 in the world. Nellie Corda and Lexi Thompson. And that's just, you know, it's a world away. So you, you could use an event like the Olympics to really showcase that it has become such a global game. It would be awesome to see... Nellie and Jessica and uh, Lexi Thompson go up against the greatest women from Sure, Jin Young Ko, SH Park, be just a dynamic one-two punch for South Korea. Yeah, and it would honestly, it would just be a statement for their country in the greater world of golf. I think we all know that women from Asia have created a bastion in the women's game. Mm -hmm. But... This would reiterate that point with a gold medal involved. Like that's a statement for us to say, you know what? Damn it. You're right. The best people in this sport are not from this country. They're not from America. So what's your biggest takeaway from the Solheim Cup? My biggest takeaway is that it is exactly as fun as we talked about it last week. I have never been to the Solheim Cup, but I was pretty critical of anyone who was saying, the Ryder Cup is better. The Solheim Cup doesn't do it for me. It's the same format. That whole rant that I went on last week, the fact that if we don't pay attention to women playing the same format as men, then we're just being outwardly sexist with our choice of entertainment. That was reiterated to me yesterday that, hey, this is really, really damn good. And I'm stoked for two years from now for it to go to Ohio. I want to go to that. Whether or not I'm sent to that event to cover it, I want to be there because it is fun. It's not far from home either. I like that. I like that. And, Sean, it's the time now to get back to the PGA Tour. (sighs) For a moment, yeah. It was a bit of a letdown, wasn't it? Sunday afternoon, you had to, after such a high of the Solheim Cup, it was like, yeah, let's head over to the Greenbrier where there is one player. (laughs) One player winning by several shots at TPC Old White. However... During a week in which my favorite player in the world, Daniel Kang, kind of had a tough week, one of my next favorite players in the world, Joaquin Neiman, grabs the trophy. That was awesome. First time he's ever won on tour. He is incredibly talented. He's 20 years old, mind you, which makes him just a little bit older than Matt Wolf, which makes him younger than Victor Hovland, younger than Colin Morikawa. He did not go to college here in the States went straight to the pros during the 2017 2018 season when he earned his card the spieth way the rom way on sponsors exemptions he was basically a top 10 ball striker on tour how can you do that at 19 years old it's be wild. one of the 10 best players at that part of your game that the, the part of the game that actually makes money at 19 years old without having like 
a really, really formal education here in the States. We did not give that enough credit for what it was. And now it's finally paying off. Yeah, there was a little bit of a lull there. I was surprised by. Yeah, um, he putted like an idiot last year. And not this week. He led the field in putting <laughs> this week. He, you know, set all kinds of records. He became the youngest player born outside the U.S. to win on tour in 96 years. <laughs> That's pretty good. First Chilean player to ever win on tour. Wow. Youngest winner ever from South America. Uh, you know, goes on and on. Third player outside the U.S. born outside the U.S. to win on tour before age 21 since World War II. The other two to do it were Seve Ooh, and Rory. Who heard of him too? Pretty good company. Pretty good company. How about a shout out to Joaquin's agent, who is also the agent of Sergio Garcia? Pretty good week for that guy. Wow. That Sergio was, won on the Euro. They were just laying the groundwork for future <laughs> drop zone appearances from. No, we'll those get players. Joaquin. We'll definitely get him on the podcast. He's a good dude. He likes hanging out with us. My takeaway from this week on the PJ Tour is Kevin Chappell. The guy disappeared for months and months and months. Came back, hadn't played, what, a competitive event since last November, and comes out and shoots 59 on Friday. Yeah. And I think... What else did he do? Sometimes there's a level of, like, unrelatably good that the PGA Tour hits every so often. It might hit it all the time, but when it's just a random week in September, and they're, you know, these guys are playing one of the lesser-followed events on tour, and then, you know, Kevin Chappell just comes out rusty, makes nine birdies in a row, (laughs) shoots 59. Literally, he gives away a golf ball after every birdie he makes, and I did not know that. He ran out of golf balls because he's never made this many birdies before. Jonathan Wall wrote about that this morning in his uh, in his equipment notes. Anyway, all this stuff we look into about who's in good form, you know, who's playing well, who's got good course history. Sometimes it's just these guys are insanely hot. Kevin Chappell shot 59. By the way, finished T47 this yeah, week. because he didn't shoot in the 60s once. He did not. Three rounds in the 70s, one in the 50s, none in the 60s. That's pretty damn amazing. All right, that's enough of the two of us. We're going to add one person to the mix. That is Mr. Senior Writer, Mr. Alan Shipnuck. Out in California, it's early morning out there. Ask Alan, you ready to do this on a podcast? I am so ready to do this on a podcast. I've been waiting years for someone just to come along and say, let's turn Ask Alan into a podcast. And finally, the visionaries have arrived. That's us. Let's get it going then. Uh, we had a wicked Solheim Cup. We've talked about that at length already today. One of the first questions is from uh, Adam O'Byrne, and it is, why aren't the Solheim Cup and Ryder Cup teams more integrated? Would it be cool if Suzanne was an assistant captain next year at Whistling Straits or if Phil was in the same role at the next Solheim Cup? I like that idea. I mean, both of these teams are searching for an edge. They're searching for knowledge. And you would think that institutionally um, there might be some crossover where some things that the, the Solheim Cuppers have learned could help our Wobegon Ryder Cup team. Um, you know, it's so tribal. They're, they're cloistered in their little team rooms and, and it's just the sanctity of the team room. You know, a guy like Phil... To, to roll into the Solheim Cup, he, he brings his, a whole different energy, and a lot, a lot of the players never met him before, or barely know him at all. So I think the biggest obstacle would just be comfort level and, and trust and, and recognizing this is, this is not some sort of silly one-off, but these people are invested. But, I mean, Phil, for instance, was, tweeted a lot about the Solheim Cup. He was clearly watching it, into it, and 
you know, I, I think, especially on the Ryder Cup side, they, they need fresh ideas. They need fresh thinking. I mean, Julie Inkster has been a successful captain. Um, you know, the American Solheim Cup team has fared much better than the Ryder Cup team. I mean, why not bring in um, an Inkster or someone like that who could just, just provide some some new some new thoughts, you know, some swing thoughts, as it were, to, to how to run the whole thing. So I'm totally on board with that. Whether the players would go for it is, is a different different question. This is just an Ask Allen question from Dylan DeChair in New York, the first of many. How does it feel to have Phil now joining, like, the legion of Twitter haters coming at you in your mentions? <laughs> well... I mean, he's 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 so late to the party. I barely notice him at this point. <laughs> but um, you know, it's funny when I guess it was a year and a half ago when I was hanging out with Phil in Rancho Santa Fe for that that golf magazine cover story, and uh, we were we were just having a chat about social media in general. And he was actually picking my brain, knowing that I'm I'm sort of active. And I said, Phil, I mean, come on, you would kill it. The guy talks so much trash. He has such a sharp needle. He thinks he always thinks he's the smartest person in any room. I mean, he's born for social media, right? And so I laid that case out to him. He said, "Yeah, that's all true." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he uh, he's like, the problem is when I get into something, I get in all the way. Yeah. Um, and I have a feeling like it might take over my life. I just don't want that to happen. But clearly, it has. I mean, he's he's an animal. I'm a little worried uh, but, about it, honestly. Well, you know, the guy's doing fireside chats, and now he's going to do Tuesday uh, tributes. Soon enough, he's going to be doing like Thursday throwback everything. He's got almost a, a franchise for every day of the week. Yeah, it just it's kind How of crazy. about Sunday stock tips and um... <laughs> no comment. No, that's great. <laughs> All right, wait. So your your last comment led us to our next question, which is from Todd Bronfman, who says Julie Inkster, Ryder Cup captain. Why not? Sure. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the, the cult of Inkster was strong. You know, she'd she'd won the last two Solheims, and she, everything was going well uh, until about the last hour. And then you have to say her singles lineup was a dud, right? She she had a couple of untested rookies in the 10 and 11 spot, and they went wound up going up against Suzanne Pedersen, who's the baddest woman in golf, and then Bronte Law, who is like a neo Poulter, and uh, you know, Europe took the Solheim Cup largely because of Captain Inkster's singles lineup. So um, I think her candidacy was a lot stronger at about 9 a.m. Sunday morning California time than it was at 11 a.m. after they'd lost it. But, um, you know, I, Julie Inkster is one of my favorite people in golf. She's so, she handled the whole thing with such class and aplomb. Clearly the players love her. Um, you know, I've, I I threw that out on Twitter facetiously, but um, I, I don't know if she would if she's ready to be accepted as the Ryder Cup captain. But I would I could see her doing the Solheim Cup in perpetuity. I mean, I know she kind of said she's done, but Tony Jacklin did five Ryder Cups in a row for Europe back in the day. I mean, when you have a captain that's having success, I don't I don't see this need to change. You know, the PGA of America. It's like it's almost like part of a media show. Oh, we're going to bring in a fresh guy to do all the press conferences and um, and bring some different energy and blah blah blah. But when when you have, when a captain's having success, I think you should stick with it. Just like eight, they should have brought Azinger back to, to defend. Um, I would I would love to see a little more consistency across um, both cups. Yeah, you know, Presidents Cup has has kind of gone to some of the old timers and they've run it back. That's kind of no one cares about the Presidents Cup, but. Um, 
I don't know if Julie Inkster is ready for the for the Ryder Cup, no. but I fully support her coming back in the Solheim Cup. Yeah, it feels like the kind of thing, the kind of idea that it, like it's it's reasonable. It's totally reasonable. It is very excitable, but I think uh, I think people like ourselves who want it to happen aren't exactly being cognizant of just the the world around us and. You know, there's going to be right. so many people that would make that difficult for her. It reminds me of when you see those photos of, like, some kid wins the NCAA golf turn- championship. Then the football coach brings him in to talk to the players. <laughs> and he's a skinny little nerdy golf guy in boat shoes talking to these 320-pound, you know, linemen. And they're like, what am I going to get from this kid? Yeah. It, it might have, you know, it might be sort of similar in, in vibe. So, um it's it's fun to talk about, and if, if anyone could do it, it'd be Inkster because she just has such a presence, and she's been in the game for so long, and she's so respected. But um, I, I think this in this particular idea is probably not gonna yeah. not gonna fly. All right. Well, has anyone ever had such a boss move as to win and retire in golf, like Suzanne Pedersen? And if anyone has been close, what would be second place to what she did yesterday? I mean, you have to go to other sports with, you know, maybe John Elway walking away from after winning the Super Bowl or Bill Russell, you know, winning game seven against Wilt Chamberlain and, and retiring after that long run of, of rings. I mean, certainly we've had golfers leave the game early. You know, Byron Nelson, uh, he was sort of at his peak when he walked away, but it wasn't with such a memorable mic drop. You know, Anthony Kim, he, he, he took the money and he's laying on a beach <laughs> drinking daiquiris, but it was... There's a whole period of, of missed cuts and bad play before that. I mean, if Pedersen sticks to this, it's going to be a legendary move. Uh, not, not only to have, have, have won the Solheim Cup, but not even really playing tournament golf for the year yeah. before that. And then to somehow come back, find her game, um, carry the Europeans to the Cup, and then leave it all behind. I mean, it's, it's spectacular. And it really I mean, it added a huge buzz to, to this tournament. I, I think... A lot of the, I've been reading sort of the the non-golf coverage, and that's the headline, you know, basically, player wins Solheim Cup, then retires. You know, it's really sort of captured the imagination, I think, of the casual sports fan, because we're so used to athletes hanging on too, for too long and, and being diminished. And uh, for Patterson to go out like this, it's, it's fantastic. I think it's the ultimate boss move. Um, along those lines, then where does the Solheim Cup rank in major golf events of 2019? This is from Paul REI 1402-9125, which we've got to get my guy to shorten up the handle there a little bit. It's like his phone number. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a Russian bot, but we'll so allow he, it. He um, says, certainly top two in his opinion, and he says, there's a real argument for it being number one, considering that there was more suspense until the bitter end, where everyone knew Tiger had secured the green jacket after his second shot on 17. Yeah, I mean, that that's true. I Obviously, for global impact and um, sort of seismic reaction. I mean, it's going to be impossible to top the Masters, but it really, you know, Tiger to make a putt over eight feet, and that was on like the fifth hole. And it was the back nine. He just he played good, cautious, conservative golf, hit a cool shot on 16, which everyone on tour can hit. Um, it, the, the victory resonates, but there wasn't really a moment. There certainly wasn't wasn't a, uh, that much tension as he played 17 and 18 and the other majors were, were cool in their own way but they they didn't they didn't have that dripping tension and what made the Solheim so cool was that um, you know Europe comes out and wins three of the first four singles matches 
uh, even after the U.S. had front-loaded, you're like, oh, this thing's over. They're gonna they're gonna win in a cakewalk, and then. And then the U.S. storms back and has all that success in, in the middle matches. And it looks like they've taken control and that they might win easily. And then, and then Europe claws back. And then those last two matches just flipped so quick. I mean, they were all square. Anything could have happened. And if they'd stayed all square, U.S. wins the cup. But yeah. um, it was just like it was just a bang-bang play. And um, I think that's what made it so memorable was, was the spectacular shot-making, the clutch putts. But it was, it was the, the proximity you know, Law Law went in seventeen, and then Pedersen went in eighteen, just like that, right on top of each other. It was it was stunning. I mean, uh, it was almost hard to keep track. You could, poor Terry Gann, I think his head was going to explode because there was so so much going on all at once. I mean, that that's the beauty of of Sunday singles and these team events when it's close, and it's kind of like it was like Medina or like Brookline or where there's a lot happening all at once. But um, to it just artistically, it was so pure. You know, everything fell away, and then it was just one woman with one putt, and and uh, for Patterson to make it like she did, it was just, it, you know, it was Hollywood-esque, right? Yeah. Well, slight correction. Uh, that was actually a question from John Fleming. The question from Paul REI, number, 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 oh, was... My mistake, Paul. W- will you and John Huggin, a.k.a. Huggy, hug it out after you called him a wanker? <laughs> Uh, yes. I mean, in fairness to Huggy, I could have gone with so many other words. I, I think wanker was probably as, as mild as could be. But, um, you know, I've been sparring with, with Mr. Huggin for decades. It's good natured. I like the guy. He, he knows the game, and he's he's the classic kind of grumpy Euro scribe. He's a perfect foil for these things. But uh, I, I do feel like he really missed the mark in his criticism of Danielle Kang, uh, which was what I led to the wanker remark because, you know, whether it's Seve Ballesteros or it's Ian Poulter, I mean, the European press builds up their Ryder Cup guys based largely on their passion and their fire and standing up to the, the, the Yankees. And it's like, um, and then Danielle King says, has a little fun with a little woofing and all of a sudden she's, you know, they're criticizing her. It's like, that's what makes these cups, whether it's the Solheim or the Ryder, fun and interesting it's the passion it's the emotion it, it it's the gamesmanship and the trash talking and you can't celebrate it when it's your guys and then criticize it when it's the other team i, I just thought that was weak so um huggy and i will be fine but i, I feel like the um the truth is my shield on, on this one couldn't agree more we did a lot of talking about how Danielle Kang was unfairly vilified uh, by the Euro press, by people on social media. Yeah, they, and and we felt bad about our our role in uh, her taking that heat, but we will not apologize for but, getting I mean, an interesting the, the, the player. The real problem is that then she she shrank from the role. Like you have to you have to go full heel turn and be like like Poulter and mm-hmm. and embrace it and have fun with it, or you know Patrick Reed, where you're you're shushing the crowd. And that that just that just turns the volume up even more, and it's fun, and, yeah. and it gets the fans into it, and it gets your teammates into it. King's, you know, we're, the only thing I fault King with is then she kind of backpedaled, and she's on Twitter saying, "Hey guys, you know, let's not take this so seriously." It's like, no, you got to keep going, mm-hmm. um, play the role. Um, so she kind of wanted it both ways, and that's that was where it got slightly messy. I mean, she should have just said, "Yeah, this is what I'm out to do." And then, of course, then she played poorly, and she she had a chance to redeem the whole thing going out in the first singles match, and she got her clock clean. So, it 
you know, I think the lesson for Danielle King is if if you want to talk smack, you got to back it up, and she didn't really back it up. All right, and then switching over to the PGA Tour, which you know, as we were saying earlier, it feels a little bit anticlimactic. Um, Fraser Rice wants to know: Is Victor Hovland the best player? to have not won on the PGA Tour after just a few months. And if not him, who is it at this point? I mean, Hovland, it's, it's, become, it's become a thing, right? Like, no matter where he is going into Sunday, you know he's going to shoot 60 nothing and, and get himself a backdoor top 10 or top 5. It's, it's fun to watch. I wish he would get off to a slightly faster start and so these rounds would have more meaning. But he's, he's, the thing about Hovland is he's already... He might already be the best driver of the golf ball on the PGA Tour. I mean, his strokes gain says he is, and the way he um, the way he just attacks a golf course that that game travels, right? So um, I, I feel like you know his future is extremely bright. Is he the best player on the PGA Tour? No, without a victory. I mean, you can make a strong case for Rookie of the Year, Sung J M, who has more body of work and. I got the answer you know, for you. You go with him? The answer is Tommy Fleetwood. He has not won oh. on the PGA Tour. I mean, are we considering him a full-time PGA Tour player? I think I mean, so. Yeah, I think he is at this point. I think just about everyone in the world top 50 is a full-time PGA Tour player at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, in that case, then, yeah, it's, it's certainly Fleetwood. He sort of plays the, he plays the bare minimum tour yeah. events. But, um, yeah. I mean, Hoblin's in the is in the discussion, but we we need to give him a little more time. Yeah. And 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 part of it's like being the best player never to have won a major. Part of getting the award is you, you have to have have your heart broken. You have some 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 close calls, and you need to um, have tasted it. And Hoblin hasn't quite really been there in the, um, in the last few holes with a chance to win. You know, certainly Fleetwood has a bunch of times, and. Um, you know, Im's had some close calls as well. So I'd put him in the top three or the top five for sure. But And he he may be the choice uh, sooner rather than later because you got to think Fleetwood's going to pick one off. But You would think. Um, you would think. You, you, you would think, although he, it's becoming a thing with Fleetwood now. I mean, he hasn't won anywhere in a long time. He's going on two years without a, a win anywhere. So totally. with that golf swing and that putting stroke, you got to wonder what's going on. All right, last question for this audio version of Ask Allen comes from at links players uh we're hearing a lot of quote sure thing and quote can't miss labels being placed on young players on tour right now you have matt wolf victor hovland joaquin neiman kala morikawa when you add that to the still very young group of bryson xander jt spieth is there really enough room for all of these people to be superstars it's it's a good question because there's a it's a zero sum game. I mean, there's only so many majors to go around, so many tournaments that can be won. Like we might have to we might have to redefine what's a superstar. If it, I think it's going to be harder for one player to pick off five or six victories. Like that used to sort of be the gold standard for a monster year. It was five wins. But with so much talent and so much parity, uh, you know, you look at you know Brooks and and Rory, they were. They were they had by far the best years in golf. They each won three times, and combined to win one major. I mean, I think um, it's not that the bar has been lowered. It's it's just more like there's it's so much harder to win than it ever has been. So um, I think all these guys are going to be consistent contenders. They're going to pile up top tens and world ranking points, and they're going to be sniffing around. But um, 
I think I think you know two wins is now going to be a monster year. Yeah. And three wins, you're going to be player of the year. It's just uh, things oh, yeah. have changed we slightly. We saw it last so, week. Um, I mean, uh, I think it's going to we're going to have to recalibrate our expectations a little bit. But uh, there, you know, there's forty something events. If if I'm a Matt Wolf or I'm a Victor Hovland, I'm going to start looking. I'm going to start scheduling some of the weaker tournaments so I can pick <laughs> off a few wins. You know, the, the we all know the the. 18 or 20 tournaments that the top players tend to congregate at. I mean, you might have to start scheduling in, in a different manner if you're this young player trying to break through because if all you're doing is going to Memorial and to L.A. and, and the WGC, I mean, it's just really, really hard to um, get your nose across the line. Yeah, you gotta you got to play these fall events. That I think it might reinvigorate the meaning of the fall event because Bryson DeChambeau has won a couple fall events. Patton Kazire has won a couple fall events. And uh, I, I feel like Patton Kazire is not a better golfer than Tommy Fleetwood, but Tommy Fleetwood will not play on the PGA Tour probably until January. So it maybe might be a good thing that this group of people are going to be playing. A better group of people will be playing in the fall. But then again, Tommy Fleetwood has good reason to be playing in Europe. Yeah. Well, it's not just the fall, but also, you know, the, the Bob Hopes of the world. You know, there's, there's always kind of – the last quarter century, there's been two tours. It's the Tiger Tour, and then it's the B-List. And um, with the, all this young talent, I mean, the, the 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 lesser tournaments will be less so. I mean, I think if you get, you know, the 3M Open was was not really a marquee event, but you had you had Bryson and Matt Wolf and Colin Morikarth just throwing haymakers out there, and it was one of the best tournaments of the year. I mean, I think that's a prime example of. You get these young guys, and we all get excited. Golf Twitter melts. Um, they they bring a lot of energy to the telecast, and um, we don't need Tiger. We don't need Phil. We don't even need Brooks and Rory. It's like um, some of these young guys, I think, excite the the golf uh, golf Twitter and the golf fan more than the old standbys. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I think your point is well taken, Sean, that the, um, the complexion of the tour has changed a little bit, and it's a good thing. I mean, there's a lot of tournaments now that, that are, are going to be more interesting than, than just uh, the obvious ones. All right, major thanks to Alan Shipnuck. Love the Ask Alan column every week because he gets a little unhinged sometimes, and I love it keeps it spicy that's what the golf.com raiders need that's what we need what we also need is for you guys to compete with me in our fall fantasy challenge i am in first place because my fourth round pick joaquin neiman took the title last week in west virginia i'm excited about this what do you have to say for the fact that you're fall fantasy you're you're losing by at least a million dollars both of you let's run through the the standings really quick Sean Zock, first place. Bryson missed the cut, your first round pick. But you got a T forty seven from uh from Bubba. Bubba. T forty two twenty four from Doc Redman. And then your fourth round pick, Joaquin Neiman, took down one point three five mil because he won by what, six shots, five shots? Six. One weekend we're already counting 20. we're already counting my millions with a uh, a decimal Jeez. point. Seven Unlike figures, one point four two eight million for you. Dylan DeChair did post, mm, led by Scotty Scheffler in T seven. I've got three hundred eighty seven k, and then Tim Riley. Uh, be kind, be very kind, right? Yikes! Now. He had two players that did not play. Um, the pundits are going to really 
kind of question some of those decisions and uh, another missed cut. So Victor Hovland saved you because yep, Hovland was strong. I'm feeling is, good. He is a Sunday God. The important and, uh, part. $189,375 for Tim Riley. Yeah. Brandon Grace let me down. Hovland did what I expected, top 10, and I feel like Hovland is going to give me the Neiman kind of treatment that Sean got this week. I feel like a win is going to come in the fall season for Hovland, so he will pay off in the long run. Yeah, there. that's probably a fair bet. The important part about all of this is that if you are listening or some of you on social media, you endorsed one of us because you wanted to win a Cobra driver, the 2020 Cobra driver. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it's called, but it's coming out at the end of this year. And one of you are going to win it. The mystique is pretty cool. I love that. The only thing that's sad is that most people back to Tim's team and he's in last place. <laughs> I was the heavy this free favorite in the comments there. I'm not sure because of, you know, the way, you know, it's a simple enough graphic. I'm not sure people understood that they were backing. They were more backing a horse. You know, they were like, you're putting your trust in Tim. Not just the team you laid out week one, but you're trusting Tim to make the right decisions over the next 10 weeks. I will not let my followers down. Oh. That's that's my promise. I you will turn it around here. Max Homa on your team. Shout out <laughs> Max Homa. No offense. Patience. Patience is a virtue. He play last week. I don't think he's playing this week. The Wolfpack deserves patience. <laughs> I can't stress that enough that Team Tim will turn it All around. All right, Tim. The one benefit of you finishing last place last week is that you get the first pick on the waiver wire right now your squad is victor hovland matthew wolf max homa and brandon grace that was my no show of the week i picked him up i wanted to start there i was like all right he'll get me the paycheck one and done got a nothing from him a mm -hmm. no show kind of like what sean got from bryson buddy the rest of the squad made up for it there all right so what are you doing so, in the ad drop period yeah. this week you know, despite the uh, the Homa insults there, I'm going to hold on to him until he starts playing. I, I got to let him get a start somewhere in here first before I start messing around with that. But Grace has got to go. And the pick that I probably should have made last week, and I wish I did because he had a good showing again, was Brian Harmon. He had, oh. a, he had a nice paycheck of the green bry there. I feel like Harmon is sneaky, one of those like top 10 names in every fall event he plays in. Like this is kind of like his time to shine that he mm -hmm. usually puts up good showings like he did the green briar. So, unfortunately, I didn't have him when he just put up his third place finish this week. But I feel like he's got a good shot this week. And even going forward, I don't know. He might be someone sixth round for a while. But right now, I'm going with Harmon to hopefully get me a good paycheck this week that I desperately need. Are you going to get rid of Keegan Bradley? You know what I'd say about Brian Harmon? You can have him. Wow. That's you can have him. Keegan Bradley, solid showing. T24. All my guys, solid squad. Top 25s from everyone that played. Colin Morikawa, I kind of thought rookie guy, going to play a ton, but instead he sat out last week. <laughs> He's sitting out this week, but I can't just drop him. This is like, you know, this is like a sunk cost thing, but I'm holding on to him because I think he's going to play these West Coast events. Keegan Bradley, it's been a pleasure. It's been real. Wow. I don't believe he's playing this week anyway. I am uh, bidding Keegan farewell, and I am welcoming Lucas Glover. To team to chair. Yeah, rounding out the squad and joining Sung J.M., Scotty Scheffler, and Colin Morikawa. We are pleased to have him. I'm getting rid of Bubba Watson. No one needs Bubba any longer. He's, not, he's, he's really kind of lost form. T47. And in honor of my favorite golfer in the world, Daniel Kang, I'm picking up her boyfriend, Maverick McNeely. Oh, wow. he's Off going, the next missed cut last week, too. He's going to play this week. He's going to play next week, I'm sure, at the Safeway where he is from. He'll play in Vegas, I'm sure, later on because he lives there now. 
He's going to get a lot of starts, and uh, I trust that he'll turn them into something for me. I did notice we had a Drab Zone listener chime in because Daniel Kang shared that line about you admired his short game, and then he might hit the shot of the week, that flop shot he hit over the bunker there, that soft landing there. Yep, so good vibes for Team Zoc with a $1.1 million lead in the event. Jeez, and just as a reminder for our listeners, once you've dropped someone, you cannot pick them back up. So Yep, Grace is done for me. You're done with Keegan. Keegan. I'm never done with Keegan, but in this case. The second reminder for our listeners is that, like, I don't know, maybe 15 of them backed me. So if you are one of those people. Yikes, you get a good like shot a, at a Cobra driver. <laughs> you have a 5% chance. At it's early. I can't stress patience enough. It's early. Hovland's going to win. I think even Wolf might get me one, so I'm going to get the comeback. All right, that is good enough for the Fall Fantasy Drop Zone Golf Challenge. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Dylan. And thank you all for listening. Tune back in here one week from now.